Last week we began this amazing chapter in the scripture, this high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus. One, as we had talked about before, really just pulls back the veil and allows us to see this inner Trinitarian relationship, this love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as well. We went over just the first two verses last Lord's Day, talking about the glory of the Son and, and the worthiness of the Son to come before the Father and to ask Him so boldly to glorify Him. The request that He made of giving eternal life to all that the Father had given to Him. And this morning, we're going to finish up this section, verses 3 through 5, which encompasses Jesus praying for Himself. Jesus will then begin to pray for the disciples in verse 6 and then following, and then for those that believe through the word of the disciples towards the end of John 17. But some of the things that we'll look at today as we are just standing in awe of what we're reading here, and that's something that we talked about before. We don't want to take this lightly because there are numerous passages in which we see the Lord speaking from heaven and he's speaking through a prophet and all of this and times in which we have seen Jesus speak to the Father, like at Lazarus' tomb, for example, but nothing as intimate as what we're reading here in this chapter. In verses 3 through 5, we'll look at a number of things, um, some things that we can absolutely begin to apply to our own lives. As we've talked about before, this, is, this, this prayer is unique. It is one that cannot be uttered by any other human because this was uttered by God the Son to God the Father. It is a prayer where he is seeking to be glorified, requesting to be glorified is something that we cannot ask for. But there are things that we can understand and things that we can apply to our life. And one of the first things that we see Jesus doing is he's praying in accordance with the will of the Father. The things that he is requesting of the Father is exactly in line with the will of the Father. And those things we should absolutely be praying for in our own life. The very thing that we know is true and we know is right. It's not a guessing game uh, when it comes to the will of the Father. We, we wonder, you know, well, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for your life? Well, it's in the scripture. We know. We know what God's will is. We know living godly and, and growing in sanctification and righteousness and all of these things. What God says is pleasing to Him. What God says is not pleasing to Him. These are all in accordance with the will of God. And so we pray for those things. We pray to be kept from those things. We're praying in agreement with the Scripture. Looking at this as well, we understand that a very, something very clearly that's right on the surface there is that Jesus is praying and He is speaking to the Father about completing the work that the Father gave Him to do. That is vitally important as, uh, without question to our salvation because had the Son not completed His work, we would still be lost and without hope. But thank the Lord that Jesus is not like we are. We will start a task and we will never finish the task. We will start on fire for the Lord. I want to do this and I want to do this and I'll start doing this and then we just stop and we don't complete it. God delights in the work that He has given us to do to complete that work. And I hope that we grow to appreciate what our Lord has done on our behalf, that we too would be moved in our own lives to pray in agreement with the Scripture, to seek the Lord's help in carrying out the tasks that we've been given. I pray that we would be stirred by our, through our prayers to be even more committed uh, to our Lord and the commands that He has given to us. There's so much to look at here, and I pray that we will all be benefited from it as we work our way through these three verses. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Just as we did last week, we will read verses 1 through 5, even though we will concentrate on verses 3 through 5. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us hear the words of the living God. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up His eyes to heaven... He said, Father, hour has come. 
glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we again come before your throne of grace, and we thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the love that is, is saturating this chapter that exists between the Father and the Son. This love that we see here is that love that is extended to us who are in the Son. Father, let us delight so much to, to be going over passages like this. And we pray that the Spirit of God who dwells within us would apply it to us, would overflow our hearts with thankfulness and love and gratefulness and adoration for all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. May you be glorified in our hearts this day through this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> As we've been talking about, Jesus has really finished his discourse with the disciples as far as speaking directly to them. This is, as one theologian said, this is, this is the climax. This is, this is where it, it's, it's all centering now. Or rather, he said, this is the crescendo of the discourse of our Lord. As Jesus is lifting his eyes to heaven, as he is praying confidently, as he is praying unto the faithful Father... He says the hour has come, the appointed time in, in God's sovereign decree in which the Son would give His life as a ransom for many, the time is there. Everything that had been foreshadowed in the ceremonial law for thousands of years is, is now culminating here. The hour had come and He requested the Father to glorify Him that the Son may glorify the Father. That the Father has given to him all authority over flesh to give eternal life. We talked about how we need to remember this. Uh, all through this, we need to remember this. That the Father is not God in himself only. The Son and the Holy Spirit is God in himself. And the Holy Spirit is God in himself. What I mean by this is, is that the Father is not communicating or mediating deity to Christ or to the Holy Spirit. They are equally God. So it's not as if Jesus is praying to the Father, glorify me, as if it is a necessary requirement that the Father alone is the one who can give glory. The Son is just as fully God as the Father. So we need to remember that. As we're looking at this, we're perhaps reminded of that inner Trinitarian covenant that theologians would call the covenant of redemption in eternity past when the Son willingly says, I will carry out the work of redemption. I will, I will carry out your will to the Father. And the Holy Spirit says, I will apply salvation to those whom you die for. Theologians refer to that as the covenant of redemption. And you see perhaps elements of that here as Jesus is praying to the Father, I'm completing the work now. Now, glorify me. Uh, this, this agreement that was made. Christ would lay aside his divine prerogatives. He would take the form of a human, becoming obedient as a man, and that the Father would exalt him, having completed his work. In verse 3, looking at all this, these amazing things that Jesus has already said, and we'll talk more about that because he repeats it again in verse 5. But in verse 3, after he says... And acknowledges that the Father has given him authority over all flesh, that to whom, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Then he defines eternal life. He defines it in a way that perhaps we wouldn't really define it ourselves. We think of eternal life as this 
this endless existence. We get to live forever and ever. That's the way we look at eternal life. I get to live forever and ever. I will never die. I get to live in this, this amazing heaven that God will create for those that are in Christ and all of this. But we do not define eternal life as Jesus is defining eternal life here. This is what Jesus says. This is eternal life. That they may know you. This is eternal life. That they may know you. The one true God or the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus defines eternal life not as, the res as, as some kind of a result of knowing God. He defines it precisely the privilege of knowing God. This is eternal life. This is the great privilege. This is the great blessings that the people of God has received. It's not that we can live so happy and joyfully in this, this heaven that God creates or the redeemed earth in the final state. But it is that we have the privilege of knowing God. And this isn't talking about a, a knowledge that is simply information. It's not just that we may, can know something about Him and, and we're blessed to have that. And, and that's part of it, yes. But this word, which is to know... This Greek word here is gnosko, and it emphasizes this experiential knowledge rather than simple knowledge. This is, this is conveying intimate relationship, knowing the very character and the nature of God and delighting in that knowledge, experiencing that love as a child of God. This is what it is to know God. Intimate fellowship with the true and the living God and the opposite of that is where Jesus emphasizes the only true God. The opposite of that is, is there is no other God besides Him. And the only God who does exist, the one who speaks creation into existence and upholds it by His power, is the God in whom, through Christ, we have the privilege of knowing intimately. To know His love, to be the recipients of His love, and have the privilege of being moved by the Spirit of God to love Him. This is the great privilege. This is, this is what it is to have eternal life, is knowing God. You think of those passages in the Old Testament of how in the end, in the final state, unless you're a post-millennial, then you'll have something different. But in the final state, that the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. One will not have to say to the other, know God, for they will all know me, he says, from the least of them to the greatest of them. That is the whole essence of what it is to have eternal life, is to know God. Jeremiah, this is, this is in agreement with what has already been said throughout the, the pages of Scripture. But in Jeremiah 9, this will be a familiar one to us, of what the Lord says through the prophet. In Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning of verse 23, the Scripture says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Jeremiah says it too. Or rather the Lord says it through Jeremiah. Let a man boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Because that is the greatest treasure of all. Of all existences is to know God in this kind of a way. Again, it's not just having a simple knowledge, but an experiential knowledge. An experiential knowledge in the sense of the Holy Spirit of God has then changed our hearts, taken out a heart of stone, given us a heart of flesh, giving us new desires, giving us new, new uh, emotions, feelings, all of these things that are grounded in the truth of God so that when we hear the truth of God or that the word of God is preached to us in whatever way, that we're moved to joy and we're, we're moved to gladness. And when we hear of the work of Christ, how our hearts are just desirous to, to just thank him so much because we recognize the love that has been given through his work, that in itself is experiential knowledge. 
do people want an experience all the time or they seek after experiences all the time? Some of the greatest experiences are the ones that we end up neglecting because we're, we're looking for some outward manifestation of something, but it's the Spirit of God who is working in the heart to produce that love and the joy and the gladness. All of that in us because of our privilege of knowing the true and the living God. But notice this too. He adds in there, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You're not going to find our Lord using that compound in any other place in the Gospel of John. Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not only knowing God, but the one who is sent from God, which is the Lord Jesus this again points us to the pre-existence of Christ. <clears throat> it brings to our understanding that it is Jesus who grants eternal life. That's exactly what he said in verse 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Christ is the one who grants eternal life. And what this then implies is once again, as it is throughout the entire Gospel of John, is the equality of Christ with the Father. Christ alone is the one who grants eternal life. How can a created being grant something that it does not naturally possess? An attribute that it doesn't have. This isn't true with Christ. Actually, if you look in some passages that are in reference to our Lord, some that we've been over already but some from the Old Testament when you're looking in Isaiah 9 and you're seeing that that great prophecy of Christ that a child will be given a son will be given his name will be wonderful counselor mighty God eternal father that's important eternal father which actually means the father of eternity that's a title given to the son of God the father of eternity the one who possesses eternality is himself the father of eternity when you're looking at a passage that is, once again, prophesying of Christ in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says of him, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And then a passage that we've been over already in John, John chapter 1, the apostle says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus in himself has the attribute of eternality. He's never began to exist. He has always existed because that is the trait, one of the main attributes that belong to God alone. No created being has that attribute. Now we have the privilege of living forever. Even the unbeliever will live forever under the righteous judgment of God. But every created being had a beginning. The only one who possesses eternality is God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And the fact that Christ is being referenced here as the one who grants eternal life, that it is just as important to know Christ as it is the only true God, because Christ is the one through whom we may know the true God. If it is just as important to know the Son as it is the Father, then that is placing them on equal standing. That they are equal in their being. The Son is fully God. Truly God. As some of the early church creeds would say. Truly man, truly God. Equal in their being. And you cannot know the only true God without knowing the one whom the only true God sent which is Christ Jesus. He is the only authorized representative of God. The only. There is no other. And only by believing in Him do we have eternal life. By believing in the Son, He grants eternal life to us to know the Father. Now, He defines eternal life in this way that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And then Jesus begins to say this about his task being finished. 
And this helps us too to understand how the Father and the Son differ in their roles, though they are equal in their being. Because there is a willing submission on the part of the Son to the Father, yes. But that does not mean that the Son is inferior to the Father. At all. Jesus says this to the Father. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. What was the work that he did? If we think of, I mean, there's, there's a number of things that we can look at to sum up what it is that, that Christ has done as far as completing the work of the Father. To live perfectly in obedience to the law of God. Yeah. To live perfectly righteous as God requires of all mankind. Absolutely. To live out with perfection the moral attributes of God before the world. Yes. Absolutely. <clears throat> what is all that pointing to? As far as living in perfect obedience to the Father. This is another thing that we will learn. Or we would learn. And you probably have known already. That Christ is referred to as the last Adam. In the scripture. By the apostle Paul. That the work of Christ was to carry out. And to complete the very thing that the first Adam couldn't do. Which was to keep perfect covenant. Perfect fellowship. With God himself to keep covenant with God because that's what God requires of all mankind and the problem is is that no human can do it it is impossible to keep covenant with God perfectly to perfectly obey the law of God to live perfectly righteous it is impossible and so Christ had to do it for us but it isn't just a matter of him keeping covenant and just being another representative of mankind. And I say that because I don't want us to get the wrong impression too. That Christ and Adam are on equal standing. Because they're not. Christ isn't just a, another human being that is created perfect. That is, that is doing what the first created perfect human being didn't do. If we look at Adam. Yes, the Lord created Adam without sin. He was created perfect. He was created upright, as the scripture says. They were created in the image of God according to his likeness. Adam had in him the moral attributes of God to perfection. They hadn't been marred yet. But through the fall, through man's rebellion, the image of God in which he was created was marred when he rebelled. And now man was inclined to wickedness and darkness. But Christ comes to fulfill what he couldn't do, to live out the perfect moral attributes of God before the world that the world can understand what God is like. Not just as a man, though. There is a great distinction between Christ himself and Adam. Adam was reflecting the moral attributes of God as we as children of God reflect the moral attributes of God. Jesus comes shining forth the attributes of God because they are his intrinsically. Adam was created in his image He's the originator. He's the source which sets Christ apart from Adam. Not only that, but the divine attributes that Christ himself shone forth throughout his ministry, his power, his authority, his glory in the transfiguration, his omniscience, all of these things that no man could ever have, Christ himself was showing forth. So through all of these attributes being demonstrated throughout, man, throughout his life before mankind, the moral attributes and the attributes that belong to God alone. Christ was glorifying the Father in everything that he did because he is showing forth what God is like. So in everything, every miracle he ever performed, everything he ever said and did as we've talked he was glorifying the Father because he was manifesting the Father to the world. It's like in, in, as we get up here and we exposit a text, Jesus was expositing the Father throughout his life. And he would go on to glorify the Father in the cross, the place in which the Father would glorify the Son. He alone pays the ransom and 
gives his life to save his people, and no, no mortal can do that. Adam could not do that. And regardless of what guys like Kenneth Copeland says, no, you could not do that. No human could ever do that. It had to be the perfect representative of mankind, the one who is truly God and truly man, only he could perform this task. And it's at the cross, of course, that you see God being glorified, the Son being glorified, because it's at the cross that you see that love and justice and holiness of God all converging at the cross that glorifies the Son and glorifies the Father. He says, I have accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Even in view of the cross, he hasn't done it yet. But it is so certain that he says it in the past tense. I have accomplished the work which you have given me to do. It's a done deal. It's certain. Even though technically he hasn't done it yet. In a few hours after praying this, of course he would. But it really sums up the entirety of his ministry. Earlier in John, in John chapter 4, when he's speaking to the woman at the well, Jesus says to his disciples in verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then here you have that inclusio being brought about there, that everything in between these two brackets, all of that was pointing to this. I've accomplished it. I said here it was my desire to do it, and now I've done it. Everything in between that we read of in the Gospel of John is all leading up to this, accomplishing the work which the Father had given him to do. And in light of that, in light of Jesus acknowledging, I've glorified you on the earth, I've made your name great, I've brought honor to you, I've brought praise to you, I've accomplished it, everything. In light of that, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is pretty amazing. And it's amazing because the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 42... In Isaiah chapter 42, this is just one of many. He says in verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. He says back in Isaiah, he will not give his glory to another. And that word glory is, is this Hebrew word kabod, which, which is expressing the weightiness of God. The weightiness of who he is, his, his glory, his splendor, his honor. Everything is summed up in this word, glory. And he says, I will not give my glory to another. And yet here you see the Son of God praying to the Father, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Again, an indication pointing right back to him being God. Another indication of his deity. No mere creature could ever come before God and say, I want you to glorify me with your glory. Absolutely not. But Christ being the Son of God, the eternal God, He prays to the Father which is in agreement with the very will of God. He's, and all these things He's praying is in agreement with the, the will of the Father. It's the will of the Father to glorify Him because He is deserving of this glory. He deserves to be clothed in splendor. He deserves to once again take His seat on His cosmic throne to exercise His divine attributes independently again. To take His rightful place next to the Father. No longer to live a life as a man and to suffer, but to come once again into the very presence of His Father face to face as what John expresses to us in the very first verse of this gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with 
God was with. With being face to face, looking toward. From all eternity, this was the relationship between the Father and the Son. And this is exactly what Christ is going back to. To be face to face with the Father in perfect fellowship. To be clothed with splendor and majesty and glory. But there is something different. There is something different. And here's something we need to understand this to begin with. Some of these things are just, just too fantastic for our minds to understand. They're just too much for us to understand. But if we can piece back just a little to try to understand this. There is something different of Christ praying to the Father to share in His glory and to once again go back into the presence of the Father than it was before. We know from Scripture that God is spirit. God doesn't have a body of flesh and bone. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit from all, all eternity existing as spirit. Perfect fellowship, perfect harmony, all the things we've talked about before. But Christ isn't returning back to that original state. Not like it was before. Christ has added humanity to his being. He hasn't stopped being God, but he has added humanity to his being. And when he added humanity to his being in order to carry out redemption on behalf of his people, he forever will be in that glorified body in which he has risen with. Forever. So now he's praying to the Father. Glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In a little bit different sense. Because now he's returning to heaven as a glorified man. To take his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. To rule and to reign. Now this isn't speaking that Christ is some kind of a hybrid. As if his divinity and his humanity are somehow intermingled or something or confused. That's one of the, the, the very things that the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD had set very clearly. That Christ has both his human nature and his divine nature. They are not confused. They are not mixed. Each retains their specific properties but makes up the one man, Jesus Christ. So is, is Christ in his divinity still omniscient and omnipresent and all of these attributes that belong solely to him? Yes, he is. But he is also truly man when he ascends back into heaven. We know that he's truly man. He did not shed off his humanity whenever he rose from the dead. He appears to his disciples as a man. As a glorified man. He says, see my hands, see my feet. See the scars. They are able to cling to him. They are able to hold him. He eats with them. And he ascends back into heaven as the first fruits from the dead. In a physical post-resurrection body. And so now... Coming as the God-man before the Father, he receives his glory once again. Paul talks about that, how in 1 Corinthians 15 he says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. John says in, in his first epistle, we don't know what we're going to be like. But we know we're going to be like him. And that is the, the culmination of our salvation is to be glorified in Christ with a physical glorified body. That's the whole point of the resurrection passages or the rapture passages, whatever you want to call them. That's the whole point is to emphasize the, the culmination of, of our salvation being glorified in Christ. That's why you have when the Lord descends from heaven, the dead in Christ rise first. Where have they been? 
They've been with him. Their body's been in the dust of the earth. Their spirit has been with the Lord. But at the resurrection, they are reunited into a physical glorified body. They're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We're changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul says, that this mortal cannot put on immortality. or This mortal cannot inherit immortality. Or we have to put on immortality. So we're changed into a physical glorified body, the culmination of our salvation. That can only be true if Christ himself was raised in that way. He didn't shed off humanity. He didn't go back to being his original state in the sense of just being spirit as God is spirit. He will forever be the God-man. Forever he will be the God-man. And that is one of the great expressions of the love of God. To show us what God the Son was willing to do in order to redeem us. To add humanity to his being and to forever be in that state. What love is that? I mean, what do you compare that to? And it's in view of this that he prays to the Father, glorify me with the glory which I shared with you before the world was. This is what's in view. And truly the Father has glorified the Son. Hold your place here in John. And it's by no accident whatsoever that John also writes the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5. Let us go there. Now the understanding of the book of Revelation that I hold to is that chapter 5 of this amazing book is showing us what has happened after the ascension of our Lord. What happened after he ascended into heaven? Revelation 5, beginning of verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In Daniel chapter 7, another passage that describes for us 
the coronation of our Lord having completed his work as he entered into heaven. Daniel chapter 7, beginning of verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. One more passage of Scripture. In Revelation chapter 1. You see in Revelation 5, the Lamb of God has entered into the throne room. He has the seven spirits of God, the perfect Holy Spirit of God that he was anointed with. And he enters into the throne room and he's presented before the Father and he receives power and authority and dominion and glory. And there's all this praise that goes on in heaven for the Lamb who has completed his task, who has purchased redemption. So the Father has absolutely glorified the Son. Not only with, with receiving all of the praise and everything that He did, but to be glorified with the glory that He had with the, the Father, to be clothed in splendor. Here in Revelation chapter 1, listen to this description, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Because of this description of the glorified Christ, John goes on to say that when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon John, and he says, fear not. The glorified Christ is the one that he has seen. The one who is clothed with splendor and majesty. The one who has all power and all authority and all glory and all the blessing. That all the hosts of heaven worship him. As we on earth worship him. The father kept the promise to the son. And he glorified him. Just as he said he would. These are the things that Jesus is praying for. Again, he's praying in accordance with the will of the Father. These are not things that he's hoping that the Father will do. He knows the Father is faithful, just as he himself is faithful, just as the Holy Spirit is faithful to sustain him and to uphold him in the time in which he will endure the wrath of the Father. This is an expression of his, his trust in the Father. I know you're going to do what you said you will do. I'm doing what I said I would do. These things are said openly and loudly that the disciples who are nearby can hear. That they would be encouraged by what Jesus is saying here. And the rest of this is going to be in, in reference to them as Jesus is going to be demonstrating his work in heaven after he ascends into heaven through mediating for the, on their behalf. To intercede on their behalf as their great high priest. Now some things before we get into verses 6 and following in the coming weeks. Some things just to look at here 
and to understand as one to be encouraged and to be so thankful to our Lord that the culmination of our salvation is to be glorified in Christ. That is the culmination of it all. The great privilege of it all is that we may know God. We can experience those things even now. You can experience those things even now of that great love that the Father has for you as you go through the pages of Scripture to see and to view all that Christ has done on your behalf. And as you do so, the Spirit of God working in conjunction with the Word that He inspired, He changes our hearts. That's, that's the great thing of sanctification. That's what sanctification is, is the Spirit of God perfecting the moral attributes of God in us until the consummation of all things. It's not going to be perfected here, but it's working toward that goal. That's what it is to be an imitator of God as beloved children, is that the moral attributes of God are being perfected in us throughout our life. That we are showing forth the very character and nature of God of how we interact with others, of how we speak. That's why everything that we do must be for the glory of God and the way that we live. We also, as our Lord Jesus is here, we pray for God's will. We pray, for, we pray in agreement with the truth of God in our prayers. We petition the Lord based on His faithfulness as Jesus is here. And we're praying for ourselves. It's not a bad thing to pray for yourself. It's a bad thing when you pray very self-centeredly in the sense of just I want, I want, I want. But we must be praying for ourselves too. Lord, help me to overcome this. Lord, help me to be more like you. Help me to suppress this side. To suppress this particular thing that haunts me in my life. Whatever it is. We should be praying that. We should be praying to grow more into the spirit and more dead to the flesh. Because that is God's will for your life. That is your sanctification. And so we pray for that. We pray in agreement with the revealed will of God. There's so many things to look at as far as the revealed will. You can look at the Ten Commandments, for example. They are applicable to us, absolutely. When it comes to sexual immorality, flee immorality, is what Paul says. Grow in the graces of God. Those things are laid out for us in Scripture. Often the problem is we just don't know because we haven't been in the Scripture. But that's where the Spirit works in conjunction with the Word He inspired. As we read through and we come to understand and the Spirit is applying it to our hearts and conforming us, changing our will, changing our desires, changing our minds, to be in agreement and in line with the Word of God. And that's why Jesus says, anything you ask in my name, I will do it. He, John prefaces that a little bit more in his first epistle. And he says, according to the will of God. When we pray, we pray for things that we know are in accordance with the will of God. And... The other thing we talked about briefly is finishing the task that God has given you to do. Don't start something that you know God has called you to do. Don't start something and then stop. If God has called you to it and God has gifted you with whatever it is, then you don't stop. There's never a time in which we can say, okay, I'm getting off the train now, I've done my duty, and I'm done. Our duty is done when we take our last breath. That's when we're done. Not beforehand. So, as we pray, we're praying for God's help to help us finish. To finish whatever it is that has been done for his glory and for his honor to finish strong when it comes to the gifts that he has gifted us with let me not grow weak let me not grow tired let me keep let me keep steadfast in this that you would be honored because that is what christ did 
here's the son of man, the very king of glory. He has nowhere to lay his head. And he still goes through everything that he did, suffering the way that he did, being slandered the way that he did, goes through a mockery of a trial. He gets beat. He gets crucified. Everything that he's doing, and, and he does it all, and he finishes the task. He says on the cross, it's finished and it's paid. If he had been like us, we would be in a whole heap of trouble. We say, well, I think I've done enough. What's the criteria that we use to decide that we've done enough? Is it our own subjective feelings? Or perhaps is God moving us to do something else? Now, if that's the case, that we've done what we've supposed to have done, we've, we've started something, we've been trying to complete something, and then we move on to something else, by, by the Holy Spirit moving us to do so, that's a little different. But whatever it is, finish the task. Perform exactly what you said you would do unto the Lord. That's why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, let us not be so hasty in word as to offer up something before the Lord. Let us not be so quick to say something and then not carry it out. That's why he says, guard your steps as you enter the house of God, knowing that he's in heaven and you're on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Don't say something presumptuously. You say something that you know that you've been called to do by the Holy Spirit of God. Yes, Lord, I will perform this. I will do this. I will carry this out. Give me the endurance to do so. And we continually pray, give me the endurance to do so. To finish the task. Pray for God's will in your life and understand the great privilege that we have of knowing God. And that's the whole essence of eternal life. We'll spend an eternity still learning to know God. And never will we exhaust who He is because He's so grand and majestic that even in heaven we still will not know fully but we will have the great privilege of spending all eternity trying to know. There are some amazing things here to glory in the Lord about, to let our hearts be lifted up to Him in praise because of these things. Your friends, let us apply these things to our life. Let us put it into practice and carry it out faithfully to show Him our faithfulness as He has been so faithful to us. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you again for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, for the work of our Lord Jesus. Thank you that he finished and carried out exactly what you told him to do. He accomplished his work. He did it fully with all of his might. Help us, Lord, to do the same. In the time that you've granted us here on earth, let us not waste our time. Let's not squander our time, but to use it to glorify your name and to pray for the things that bring you glory. Father, I pray if anyone here does not know you in this intimate fellowship of which our Lord is speaking to us about here, I pray, Father, that you would do a mighty work in their hearts to grant them faith, to change their hearts, give them such desires for the Lord Jesus as they call upon him in faith, trusting in all his work, his work on the cross, his work on the cross alone for their salvation. May you be glorified in all that we say and do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.